Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Hope everything is good with you. Um, as we keep saying every time we sit down to record a podcast, really interesting times at the moment. Uh, could I start off by asking you what the hell is going on with UK politics at the moment? Uh, five close advisors of Boris reported to be gone. What does it all mean? A very good question, Jim, which is how most politicians these days answer questions when they're asked by political journalists and commentators because they don't know how to answer that question. There are two schools of thought. One is that Johnson's in just the usual chaos, in fact, more than usual chaos, that he's clearly falling apart and these are the end of days and the end of his administration. The next foreign secretary was on the BBC last night saying precisely that, that this is the beginning of the end. And that was a quote from Malcolm Rifkind. Johnson's supporters are saying that this is just all planned. It's all part of what he promised earlier on in the week with respect to revamping the administration in number 10. I think that's absolutely bogus. It's complete crap, actually. And it's just them fighting a rearguard action, trying to make the best of a really appalling job. To say that all of these departures were part of the planned revamp of Downing Street is clearly and demonstrably a lie because if it was part of a planned process, they would have been announcing the replacements of these people as they were leaving. It was just all so rushed and hurried. The suspicion that we have is that the worst departure from Johnson's perspective was of a woman advisor who'd been with him since he was mayor of London. And this person 
uh, is an interesting person in her own right, actually. She's made that journey, which has been present in uh, both British and American politics for a long time. These kinds of people are really interesting. She began life as an undergraduate at Oxford, I think, inevitably, as a hardline Marxist and was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party of Great Britain, believe it or not, and has just resigned as Boris Johnson's chief advisor. Wow. In the interim, she was closely associated with somebody that you in Ireland know because he made regular appearances for a while anyway on Eamon Dunphy's show, The Stand, a guy called Brendan O'Neill. And yes, indeed. Again, there were close links there. Anyway, so she's a very interesting person. And that journey from being ultra left to ultra right is always fascinating to observe and to look at the kind of people that make that journey. And she seems to have been one of them. And she resigned over the Jimmy Savile affair, which you probably noticed I wrote about only yesterday. Luckily, I put this thing up on the Substack website before all these resignations started, in which I described Johnson as going full Trump. And it was a new low for British politics. And that, in a way, is the answer to your question. It is a new low. Because in the House of Commons earlier this week, Johnson, in response to, to Keir Starmer's attacks on Partygate, tried to link uh, Keir Starmer with the decision not to prosecute Jimmy Savile for his many crimes against children, which, which was a slur. It wasn't true. It was a lie. The BBC and many others have fact-checked it and it just wasn't true. And what's been disgraceful, one of the many disgraces of this week have been a succession of not all, but some Tory politicians saying he, that Johnson was utterly justified in making these remarks because any head of organisation is ultimately responsible for what that organisation does. And the organisation in question here is the Department of Public Prosecutions. They didn't prosecute Jimmy Savile for his crimes. That was nothing to do with Starmer. But as head, he ended up having to apologise for doing it. Now, there's a couple of things about that worth noting is that what on earth is Johnson trying to do to equate what happened with Partygate with paedophilia and in particular, the need for a chief executive or boss to take responsibility for what's going on? Because the one thing that Johnson's been doing over recent times is trying not to take responsibility for Partygate. Secondly, Johnson or at least 10 Downing Street, um, people within 10 Downing Street are clearly under criminal investigation at the moment because of Partygate. Nobody ever investigated Keir Starmer for anything. So it, it just, it was an awful slur. And this woman resigned because of it. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, made a pointed remark yesterday in response to a question about this specific issue, in which he said, if it had been me, I wouldn't have made that remark. That has angered Johnson supporters because they see that as the start of Sunak making a move. So depending on whether you're a Johnson supporter or not, and I think one of the, as I say, big disgraces of this week was the comment he made, but almost as equally disgraceful has have been his supporters trying to say that he was justified in uh, offering that slur. We, we have a succession of new lows in British politics. My own feeling is that it is the beginning of the end. The only thing that's uncertain at the moment really is how long Johnson can hang on. And there we face the internal politics of the Conservative Party, which are a mystery at the best of times. There are lots of issues there. We don't 
have an obvious replacement for Johnson. That's one of the key problems facing them. There is a strong faction within the Conservative Party that still supports this awful man. This has to play out. The people that, whether they support him or not, think that a replacement would be a good idea for the country and for the party and for winning the next general election, whenever that comes, tend to think that it'd be better done later rather than sooner at a time of the Conservative Party's choosing rather than this media shitstorm that's going on at the moment. And so they think that they have some time on their side. And the reason why they think they have time on their side is that the anger over Partygate, according to all the focus groups that are being done at the moment and various polls, the anger is subsiding. And there, I think they're making a mistake. Because it's a bit like you might remember Dominic Cummings and made a famous trip to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight during one of the first lockdowns, if not the first lockdown. Anger with Cummings has subsided, again, according to focus focus group research. That's because anger always does subside. It's, It's the human thing to do. But what hasn't subsided is Cummings' unpopularity. When asked, people say that Cummings is even more unpopular at the moment than Boris Johnson. So you can be less angry with somebody, but still not like them. And I think that's what's going to happen to Johnson. What is happening to Johnson is that anger over Partygate is slowly subsiding. The passage of time is working its magic for him, but people still don't like him now. And his popularity has gone. All of these dynamics are playing out. Nobody knows quite how it's going to go next. We've had another resignation only today. Four yesterday, one today. More rumoured. Lots of other things are going on in Britain, not just with respect to its politics, but inevitably, because economics always impacts politics and vice versa, we call it political economy in the old-fashioned use of the words. Can I I just ask you about that, Chris? Um, Yesterday, we had the Bank of England increasing interest rates by a quarter of 1%, bringing the base rate up to a half percent. The first back-to-back increase in interest rates since 2004 And interestingly, four members of the Monetary Policy Committee voted for an increase of a half percent. So interest rates are rising. That will squeeze people. At the same time, Ofgem, the energy regulator, um, has lifted the cap on energy prices for 22 million customers by 54 percent. And that will add around 700 pounds to the average energy bill in 2022. And indeed, the Bank of England yesterday described what's happening in the UK economy at the moment as representing the biggest squeeze on living standards for 30 years and forecasting incomes after tax to fall by 2% this year. And part of that equation is the fact that in April, a national insurance increase is in the pipeline to pay for the National Health Service. All in all, while the UK economy is doing well, UK politics is in total turmoil. There's stuff happening that will certainly make life more difficult for uh, the personal sector and the consumer in the UK. From the perspective of the Tory government, you know, building real economics into the world of real politics, would the Tories be better off just to stick with Johnson until all of this stuff is out of the way? A commentator I like a lot, he's not very high profile, his name's Chris Dillo, and he put it brilliantly when he said that maybe the Tories actually need a dishonest leader. Maybe they need Johnson because governing honestly would require recognising the many truths, some of which you just described, which are economic. Others are not economic. It's recognising the truths of Partygate and all the other scandals. But the economics are rising prices, rising energy bills, higher taxes in two months' time, and, as you just rightly said, rising 
interest rates. That vote for a quarter point rise was five to four. So it was unanimous that rates go up. But four of them, as you say, wanted 50 basis points. No politician would like those set of circumstances, let alone what's going on in the background. It is perhaps the perfect cliched poison chalice. Whoever inherits, if Johnson does go, if whoever inherits 10 Downing Street has got a heck of a year or two in head of, ahead of him or her. I think it would be too Machiavellian to say that people who would like to be prime minister are saying, I need to wait. I think what happens in these circumstances is that people, whether it's Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, or whoever is lining up to replace him, realise that you don't get many opportunities in life for the top job. Whether it's prime minister, head of a government, head of a corporation, these chances don't come around very often. Often they don't come around at all. And when it comes, you have to take it. So I, if it was me, and I desperately wanted to be British Prime Minister, I don't, <laughs> says thank God everybody else, then I think that they have to go for it now. The problem with waiting for the individuals that I've just mentioned and some of the others is what has also been called Johnson's toxic embrace. Because every day he remains in office is one that any of these potential candidates for taking over for him become less and less attractive simply because they're standing next to this piece of toxic waste for far too long and they're being tainted by his embrace. There's an old saying from the Godfather movies. I'm a a huge fan of these movies for all sorts of reasons. I think that once you know a bit of Shakespeare and a bit of the Godfather, you know most things about about life. Yeah, put the Sopranos Sopranos in there again. Absolutely. and the, yes, best television ever. And and I always remember The Godfather saying to Michael Corleone, um, played by Al Pacino, keep your friends close and your enemies closer still. And that's what Johnson is doing with Sunak and Truss. He's bringing them in, bringing them in, trying to embrace them so that they will find breaking away from him even harder. And uh, the way I just described it with the way in which other commentators are describing is that this is now a toxic embrace. And the longer Sunak and co leave it, the harder it is going to be for them to become prime minister. And we may well find that the candidate ultimately comes from outside the current cabinet. And a name that's often mentioned as being a long odds good bet is uh, Jeremy Hunt, who ran against Johnson in the leadership campaign of a couple of years ago and ended up as runner up to him. Um, It was a runoff, straight runoff between the two candidates. So this one will play out in ways that are difficult to predict, particularly over timing. But my guess is that short of something really dramatic happening, um, I'm reminded here that uh, the Falklands War came along to save Margaret Thatcher at a time when she was deeply unpopular. Things can happen to turn this sort of stuff around, but it has to be something pretty spectacular. And of course, we all hope that that doesn't happen or at least something like a war doesn't happen. Uh, Johnson's finished. And it's just a question of when and who's going to replace him. There's a lot of discussion in this country at the moment. Well, sorry, the government is giving consideration at the moment to the introduction of potential measures to alleviate the cost of living pressures on people. And I note that in the UK yesterday, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced there was going to be a council tax rebate of £150. There was going to be a £200 discount on electricity bills from October and that this discount would be repaid in five annual installments of £40. And the government has pledged £5.5 billion in loans for energy companies to help 
alleviate those cost of living pressures coming from the energy side. And I note also that across many European countries, uh, measures are being introduced to try and help the consumer overcome these significant energy-driven, mainly energy-driven cost of living increases at the moment. Um, yesterday, the European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde, um, in her press conference after the decision that was announced to keep interest rates on hold once again, she said that inflationary risks in the Eurozone are now on the upside and she did not rule out the possibility of an ECB rate increase this year. And of course, the markets um, over the last couple of weeks, and we discussed this last week, but the markets have certainly moved quite aggressively to start penciling in three or four possible ECB rate increases by the end of this year. So yesterday very definitely marked a change tone from Christine Lagarde and definitely one that starts to fly in the face of what Philip Lane has been saying up until very recently about the fact that the inflation problem in the euro area was transitory, that inflation would come back quite significantly. And um, we have often discussed here this definition of transitory. Um, It is lengthening. There's no doubt about that everywhere. But um, yesterday, certainly from an ECB perspective, did mark a significant change in tone. So, and I I guess I have said this over the last couple of weeks, but um, do you think it's now time very much for Irish borrowers and savers indeed to start penciling in the possibility of um, an ECB rate increase sometime quite soon? Well, that was certainly the signal, as you say, from the ECB this week. Uh, It was a change. And, and really a big change. And you can see that in the way that markets have reacted to this. It's important to stress that up until this meeting of the ECB, uh, Christine Lagarde has been trying to bend over backwards, along with Philip Lane, to say that there would be no rate hikes this year. Now the markets are discounting um, at least one, if not two or more rate hikes. It depends whether they move in small or large increments. Goldman Sachs, for example, uh, are now saying that the money printing or that, that's one way of describing it. The ECB would say asset purchases, bond, bond purchases, quantitative easing will now end in June. And the sequencing of that is interesting, or at least important to note in that Christine Lagarde said that she wants money printing to stop before they raise interest rates. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's not something that we're sure that the Americans are doing. Um, it strikes me that the Americans are threatening to raise interest rates and still print money. So it's all a bit strange over there. So there's logic on the side of that move. So Goldman's are saying that they're going to stop money printing in June. And then through the second half of this year, there will be two 25 basis points, quarter point rises in interest rates so that the current official ECB rate, which is currently minus a half a percent, will be zero by the end of the year. So on the face of it, you might argue that this isn't a big deal, that two rate hikes across 12 months, uh, We end up the year at zero instead of a bit negative, but they are really quite big moves. And you can see that in the bond market, the um, Irish 10-year bond yield, the rate at which the government has to borrow money was at its highest rate this morning in three years. Um, It's still low. It's 0.65 of a percent. So in real terms, the Irish government can still borrow very, very cheaply, negatively, But things are on the move. So I think that by the end of the year, if these expectations play out, 
uh, we might even be looking at mortgage rate hikes by the end of the year. Uh, I'm not sure these expectations are going to play out. It's only February and these are forecasts over the next year. I go back to my comments I made on the last podcast in which I think that the European economy will disappoint again this year and that will contribute to inflation coming down of its own accord. But that verges on an economic forecast and I don't make those as we know. So it's 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 a big deal, Jim, and things are moving and moving very rapidly. And of course, that's putting those rises in bond yields, fall in bond prices that I just mentioned, the German bond yield, the 10-year rate at which Germany borrows from the markets has gone positive this morning. And if it closes at a positive rate, and by positive, you need to keep this in context, 0.03 of a percentage point, that'll be the first time that German governments have had a positive borrowing yield, at least in nominal terms, since 2018. So these are big days in financial markets, um, and with lots of consequences, most of which we're, we're yet to see. As you say, the Irish 10-year rate up at 0.65%. Um, a few months ago, it was at minus 0.25%. So that does represent a significant change, albeit, as you say, in historic context, bond yields are still low. We said in the last couple of weeks that it was time that people might perhaps start thinking about uh, locking in their mortgage, fixing, borrowing, whatever they could do. And um, I think that 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 story is definitely playing out at the moment. But as you say, there's still a long way to go in the Eurozone in terms of how the economy performs. Uh, the labour market, the unemployment rate is at 7%, the lowest since the Eurozone was formed. Uh, but on, So that's a strong number. Um, is not reflecting itself in significant upward pressure on wages, or at least that we can see. And this morning we had retail sales data out for the Eurozone, which was quite weak. And I guess that was reflecting Omicron and the impact that was having on restrictions to varying degrees across different countries. So it'll be another interesting story uh, that will work out over the coming months. Here in Ireland, we had a few data releases over the past week. Uh, We got the January unemployment numbers and the unemployment rate increased from 5.2 in December to 5.3% of the labour force. And if you adjust for workers who are on the COVID scheme and who are not officially categorised as unemployed, but are effectively unemployed, that rate increased from 74 to 7.8%. But I would stress that that 7.8% in January compares to a rate of 27.1% a year earlier And now with all of these restrictions being lifted in the Irish economy, we're seeing economic activity rebounding very strongly and we will see the labour market um, improving dramatically. And in fact, um, you know, I'm hearing from people in the recruitment industry, particularly that the labour market is absolutely on fire at the moment. There is massive demand for workers Uh, There's a significant scarcity of workers and so on. So a very, very tight labor market. And as I say, as the economy reopens, as those restrictions are lifted, uh, that situation is obviously going to get worse. We had the first month of exchequer returns uh, for January. And I know one can never judge anything based on one month statistics, but at the end of December, and we, we've spoken about this and I've written about it on our Substack site, that the Exchequer finances in December were incredibly strong. 
and we ended the year with incredibly strong momentum in income tax, in VAT, and also in corporation tax. And that pretty much, not surprisingly from my perspective, has carried over into January. Um, For the first month of the year, we had a next checker surplus of 2.2 billion. And there is always, well, there's generally a surplus in January because it's a month when you get a lot of VAT receipts coming in particularly. Um, But 2.2 billion surplus, um, which is a billion better than the equivalent month last year. But income tax up by 2.6 billion or sorry, income tax is up at 2.6 billion. That's a 13% increase on the previous year. VAT at 3.1 billion is up 32%. And as I say, January is always, well, it's a month when VAT payments are made for November, December. And um, it's particularly strong this year. And I I would also, I, I guess, add that while that does reflect strong consumer spending, um, if you think back to this time last year, uh, you know, well, particularly in December of last year, we were starting to see restrictions being implemented again. So year on year comparisons are a little bit dangerous at the moment. But having said that, the underlying story with VAT and income tax is incredibly strong. Corporation tax uh, January is a non month, 81 million collected, up 24 million from last year. But um, very little corporation tax gets paid in January anyway. So, you know, in total, we took in 6.7 billion um, in total taxation. That's up 1.3 billion or 24% on last year. So this story of ever improving public finances here, driven by really, really strong tax revenue buoyancy continues. So it's, it's a decent story. And, um, it, it kind of does feed into uh, one of the, well, there are two big issues of um, topical discussion here, let's say at the moment, uh, the ongoing story about the housing market and the problems there. Uh, but a more immediate problem now is the significant increases in the cost of living. And as I said earlier, government at the moment is considering various ways in which they could alleviate those cost of living pressures. And um, with the income tax take particularly, well, the tax take generally performing so strongly, um, it does give the government some firepower to try and deal with these cost of living conditions. But I, I would say that these government interventions are, you know, they're always dangerous because it is very hard to stand in the way of market forces. Um, and, and what we're seeing in terms of cost of living increase at the moment is very much reflecting what's happening market forces in natural gas markets in oil markets and so on but um you you will see i think over the next few days announcements being made by government to try and alleviate those cost of living pressures just like rishi shunak announced yesterday and as i said a number of european countries are adopting similar similar measures at the moment within the numbers as you say the corporation tax it's a non-month but it certainly wasn't a non-year our old friend Seamus Coffey friend of this podcast been writing this morning about the profits of what he calls GAFAM which is uh, Google Apple Amazon Facebook and Microsoft Uh, the numbers uh, for one year are staggering that group of companies made 356 billion profits last year uh, dollars. Uh, that's up from two, 226 billion the year before. 
Most interestingly, they paid in cash terms 64 billion in tax, which in those cash terms, there are different ways, as you know, accountants have all sorts of different ways of measuring this. But in pure cash terms, that's an 18% corporation tax rate compared to just under 15% the year before. That's all the taxes they pay everywhere. Over the last five years, these companies have made in total over a trillion dollars in profits. So if you want a simple, maybe slightly simplistic, but not too far from the truth reason why we've had such a great one-year and multi-year performance of corporation taxes in Ireland, look to these sorts of numbers. And that's the profitability of these companies. Now, that said, of course, um, the F in that name was Facebook. And that was a real market moving event this week when Facebook, uh, after hours, so not even during regular market trading, fell by about, in terms of its market capitalization, the share price fell, wiping about $250 billion off the value of Facebook. Now, Jim, I've got a question for you. What's the link between Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook and Estonia? Tell me, Chris. Well, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg is the chief executive of Facebook and owns yes. an awful lot of Facebook shares. And the value of his shares alone, his wealth fell on uh, the day that Facebook announced these uh, rather negative results by more than the GDP of Estonia. Wow. So, um, That's just, just a little factoid. Um, and so one of the interesting trends that we're seeing here is that uh, these companies, which have all been growing at rapid rates and all been benefiting from um, massive increases in share prices, the, the, these kinds of tech companies are now showing signs of peeling off. And the winner takes all world that we lived in, which was that tech won, everybody else lost, even within tech now. Winner takes all is becoming even more concentrated on a few, on fewer winners because we also had Amazon numbers out this week and its share price after hours. We'll have to see exactly how it goes when it's properly trading uh, increased by almost the same amount that Facebook fell. So uh, depending on which one you owned and which one you didn't, you could have either done very badly or very well. So winner takes all. We really do live in that kind of a world. And I certainly hope that um, uh, Amazon and Apple are the companies that pay most corporation taxes in Ireland rather than Facebook. But that said, Facebook's profits were still pretty, pretty strong. Um, they just weren't as strong as expected. So we have to put these sorts of numbers into context. But these are extraordinary companies, bigger than a lot of countries, bigger than, you know, the, the, the fall in Facebook's uh, market capitalization was bigger than many, many companies, the size of total companies around the world, household names. It was just an extraordinary moment in stock market history. So the, these are, are big deals. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing about Facebook is, for me, um, one could have seen it coming. This is, this is an aside about a particular stock because all of the younger people I know, and I do know some of them, reckon that Facebook is a platform for old people. Uh, and they don't use it anymore. And that seems to be what Mark Zuckerberg said that drove the share price down, that uh, young people are moving to TikTok, for instance. Uh, there was also a particular thing that Apple did. It changed some terms and conditions about how uh, advertisers can track people. And um, that has affected Facebook's revenues as well. So quite a lot going on. But I think a very simple story is that Facebook faces a severe problem 
with respect to younger users and it needs to find ways of attracting them. And I think that that's been the uh, uh, move to rename itself Meta and to go into into the Metaverse. That That's its strategic response to this challenge from younger people being turned off. So the, is acquisition its only way out of this? The cynic in me, and I don't know this at all, but the cynic in me wonders, merely asks a question. I don't suggest it. I ask the question, is this huge negative use news about Facebook and it claiming that it's getting increased competition from the likes of TikTok, a device or a convenience or something that's very handy as an excuse to put in front of regulators, both in the United States and in Europe, who are going after these kinds of companies because they are so profitable, because pro- profitability of the scale that I have just mentioned suggests that they aren't terribly competitive, that there is no effective competition for them so that they can say to the regulator, look, TikTok's stealing our lunch and you don't need to regulate us anymore because other companies are doing what it says in the textbooks and competing away our profits. I don't know if that's a strategic reason behind the chatter around TikTok, but um, as I say, the cynic, the skeptic in me does at least ask that question. Going back to the Irish corporation tax piece, uh, last year, 10 companies accounted for over 50% of our corporation tax take, okay? That means 10 companies paid an average of over 700 million euro in corporation tax here last year. And and I guess we don't know for confidentiality reasons, those 10 companies, but I guess uh, most of those you've spoken about in the last few minutes um, feature in there very, very strongly. So that, that whole global tech picture, the winner takes all that's happening is very definitely benefiting significantly the corporation tax take in this country and uh, as as long as those companies continue to do what they do successfully uh, I wouldn't have too many concerns about the future tax take in this country unless there are some dramatic structural shifts in regulation or whatever but the global corporation tax deal that's due to be implemented and I say due rather than definitely um, on the 1st of January 2023 uh, I don't think poses a game changer for Ireland at this juncture, but it's it's also one to watch to see how the politics of that actually evolves. Yeah, I think that, that, that yes, the corporation tax changes are a threat of sorts to Ireland, and we've talked about how we don't think they're as big a threat as some other people seem to think. Perhaps as big or even bigger threat is if these profits for some reason go into reverse, either they're competed away or they're regulated away, that's a threat. But at the moment, I would look at Amazon and Apple's profits as a, as a guide to, to where these things are going. There's certainly no signs of them being competed or regulated away. So I, I would join you in saying that, that in the short term, at least, there's no, no big threat. But the, the growth rates that we've seen, the sheer size of these companies now mean that there must, in the years ahead, not in the months ahead, be more regulatory threats. That would certainly make sense to me. And um, that that would be the thing. If they are to be competed away, that means that other companies are going to eat these Apple, Facebook, Google profits. Then you want to hope that the likes of those companies, whoever they are, whether they exist today or not, are also going to be in Ireland. Because if they are, you don't care where the profits are, provided the companies have some of their operations in Ireland. So, for example, I don't know, actually. I mean, do you know if TikTok has an Ireland operation? I actually don't know. To be honest, yeah, it's a um, question, isn't it? It is indeed. You know, I'm I'm preparing for exams at the moment, and one of the modules that I'm stuck in uh, is strategy, 
And it's really interesting going back over decades, how companies have got their strategy so wrong and have effectively disappeared. And other companies have got their strategy so right and have survived and prospered. Uh, I'd love to know, actually, and perhaps I've had enough time to delve into this, but I'd love to know what sort of strategies that these big companies have in place at the moment, you know, to deal with these competitive threats, to deal with, you know, something like Facebook is facing it. Well, sorry, pardon the pun. Something like Facebook is facing at the moment with the the move away from uh, young people away from the platform. It's now become an old person's platform. It's a really interesting question, and and, yeah. and it's something that you know anybody that's involved in corporate strategy, anybody that's involved in investing their savings in these companies needs to tackle. And of course, different people have different views on this. Um, I have a very prejudiced view that that yes, you can you, you absolutely do need well managed companies with people who are good strategic thinkers. But trying to define what a good strategic thinker is is really tough. Certainly trying to spot a good strategic well, thinker. Chris, I have, to, I have to answer exam questions on that shortly. Yeah, well, my to cut a very long story short, I think that an awful lot of these companies, yes, they've been well, well run. Yes, there's been the odd strategic genius like uh, Steve Jobs. But the thing that you also need, as Napoleon said about his generals, you need an awful lot of luck. An awful lot of this money that is being earned by these companies is down to chance and circumstance, being in the right place at the right time, serendipity, all of those words. And for me, in, in, in the long run, that once we recognize the extent to which both personal and corporate success depends on luck, um, that's where the taxation should lie. We should tax luck. We shouldn't tax strategic genius. Chris, on that note, we leave it. Can I just uh, put in a personal message for a listener? Uh, my nephew, Dennis, is getting married in El Paso, Texas this afternoon, Texas time. So I'd just like to wish himself and Kelsey all the best. Um, he may not hear this today. I think he'll have other things in his mind, but hopefully he'll hear it over the next week or two. So the very best of luck, son. Many congratulations to your nephew and his uh, wife. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.